Hello. How's it going, Tom? It's going well. How are you doing? Not bad. Thanks for being so understanding. I cannot believe what a freaking idiot I was. <laughs> You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I hope this song will help erase the memory of that Dancing in the Streets video. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show brought to you by the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. Go check it out, folks. Hey everyone, my name is Sean Eagle, and today we're going to be covering our prerequisite two issues of Guy Gardner and Green Lantern. Guy Gardner this time around is, well, it's an interesting one, and it's sort of a comedy, sort of, and sort of a uh, monster uh, fight. I guess Guy finally gets to meet up with a big bad, and it's a monkey, so that should make Dave Walker happy, because anytime you can add monkeys to a comic, that's always fun. However, over in Green Lantern, which is one of the more important ones, Kyle is deciding to go out on a quote-unquote hero's quest, quest, sorry, where he is going to try and find out what it's truly like to be a hero, and the first person he decides to go to would be... Probably the person you don't want to encounter at all. It's the damn Batman. Well, no, not the Frank Miller Batman, but he decides to go talk to Batman for some help. And he encounters Robin as well. Which leads me to my special guest this time out. A person who probably knows more about Robin than anyone on the internet. He's the host of Taking Flight, a Nightwing Robin podcast, and also host of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast and a blog site as well. Ladies and gentlemen, first time on the show, and a very good friend of mine, Mr. Tom Panneries. How's it going, Tom? Good. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm glad that you were able to come on. <coughs> uh, this was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing, and when I saw the cover of this, I couldn't think of anyone else but you to be on the podcast, and uh, sadly, <laughs> after reading it, Batman and Robin really don't appear all that much in it. So I did. I may have dragged you into something that, you know, wasn't specific. But regardless of that, I'm glad to have you on. I'm, I'm hoping that this will be an enjoyable couple of issues to take a look at. Yeah, they were they were fun. And uh, and, and I, I like this. I particularly like this era of Green Lantern. I'm, I'm among those who, you know, couldn't care less if Hal Jordan was the primary and I always like Kyle Rayner, so it was. It's been fun to go back through these. I'm glad to hear that because you know, with the era of Jeff Johns, there are far too many people who have forgotten about this era of Green Lantern, and I'm glad that there's people out there who still enjoy it. So, but uh, since we're going to do the obligatory thing of take a little break and plug some promos, probably for a Two True Freaks podcast, which I'm legally required to promo. Uh, as soon as we get back from that, we'll go ahead and get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 71. Mr. Scott. Shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? 
I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? Humans make illogical decisions. Distract the sequence completed and engaged. No! Yes, I found the spark. I'm talking the spark to the sand. Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Fire the sky. Star Trek Monthly Monday, covering every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order, on the second Monday of every month, at twotruefreaks.com. Holy nightmare! So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad, holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing. So I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. And we're back. So, as I'm used to, let's go ahead and start our coverage of Green Lantern number 71. Green Lantern 71 was cover dated February 1996 with a release date of December 19, 1995. Thanks to Mike Spade's World of DC Comics for that. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Hero Quest Part 1, Gotham. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Linda Medley, letter Albert Guzman, boy wonder, uh, Eddie Braganza, <laughs> you're not funny, Eddie, and Kate Crusader, you're not funny, Kevin, Kevin Dooley. Standing atop a building, flanked by a gargoyle, I know, that's never been done before, the Dark Knight detective Batman looks down on a group of jewel thieves, calling himself the Checkered Gang, who happen to be carrying out the act related to their career path in crime. 
The Cape Crusader swoops down upon the villains, preparing to bring them to justice, but is interrupted by the appearance of Green Lantern Cal Rayner, who handily wraps up the three thieves. Batman informs the youthful Lantern that it was too bad that there were four of them, which leads to Kyle getting wanged in the head with a bag full of diamonds. Quickly recovering, Kyle bolos the legs of one of the escaping thieves as Batman takes the two others down. One of the gang makes it to the escape vehicle, but is stopped short by a kick to the face by Robin the Boy Wonder. Heist averted, Kyle apologizes to Gotham's defender for his screw-up and gets the terse response of, What do you want? Swear to me! (laughs) Sorry. Sheepishly, Kyle asks if Batman could give him any advice on being a hero, and the response is just as terse as before, with the Dark Knight saying that he doesn't have time to play teacher. Kyle tries to apologize, but as soon as he looks up, Batman has done his Batman thing and disappeared. Robin, however, has stayed behind, and gives the young Lantern a bit of advice, as well as some reasoning behind Batman's motivation. Thanking the boy Wonder for his vote of confidence, Kyle turns to find that Robin has disappeared just as quickly as Batman did. Kyle heads off to do a little sulking, as his first attempt to get some advice from the superhero community hasn't worked out the way he planned. Feeling a bit vindictive, Kyle rings up a construct to obscure the bat signal with his own Green Lantern emblem, and then sets down for a little bit of introspective monologuing. This is quickly interrupted by the arrival of Alan Scott, former Green Lantern, current Sentinel. Alan saw the lantern signal and followed it to Kyle's location, and Kyle asked Alan if he could give him some tips on this whole hero shtick. Surprisingly enough, Alan has something in mind. Atop a roof of a Gotham building, Sentinel stands awaiting the arrival of Harlequin, a smoking hot babe with the power to create nightmares. The voluptuous vixen says that they were made for each other, but Alan is having none of that. Alan uncovers a blanket that was near him, revealing his wife Molly. This infuriates Harlequin, and she unleashes a horde of undead apparitions to attack the former GL. Seeing this, Kyle leaps into action, only to get sidetracked by a ghastly vision of the giant decaying skull of his lost love, Alice. Overcoming his fear, Kyle rings up a mask to cover his eyes, then fires a ring construct stare line at the curvaceous clown, putting her out of commission. Price is averted, Kyle asks for an explanation, and Alan says that the Harlequin that they fought was just an empty, but again, a really, really hot shell of love of his life, Molly. Due to a deal with Neron and the whole Underworld Unleashed storyline, Molly had sold her soul to get back her youth. Alan retrieved her soul and now plans to put it back in the body of his wife. Watching the strange ritual, Kyle wonders if this is part of being a hero and if he would be willing to do the same for someone he loved. In the end, Molly was returned to her old self's body and Sentinel thanks Kyle for his help, telling that sometimes a hero has to do the hard things to get the job done. Thanking Alan for the advice, Kyle tells him to pass on the word that he's sorry about the whole bat signal co-opting, to which Alan says that he thinks that the Batman probably already knows. Oddly enough, we then cut to an unnamed planet where a battered and bloody dark star crawls across the ground. Suddenly, the Dark Star is yanked up by an unseen hand and is dispatched with a quick snap of his neck. Dropping him to the ground, the two unknown assailants plan to send the Dark Star's head in order to let them know that they are coming.
there you go. Green Lantern number 71. Tom, have you got some uh, thoughts on this issue? Yeah. Um, let's start with the cover. I, I like the covers. The cover is nice. It, it actually, although I wrote the phrase practice pose because it's very like I'm practicing to draw a pin up here, but it's uh, Paul Pelletier is, is a great uh, penciler. Oh yeah. I, I, I like it. There's a lot of Alan Davis in him, and I think that's why I liked his his Batman throughout the issue. Oh yeah, I can see I can see a sort of parallel to that. I like the cover as well. It's a nice it's a nice dynamic shot of Kyle coming in from the right and flying to the left, and the bat signal coming in from the left and flying to the right. So it's a nice dynamic look. It is yes, very posed. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, Pelletier is drawing the character. Not actually doing something, but more posing. But it's a good. Yeah. I've I've liked Pelletier's art in the book. Uh, it's a bit different from what we'd get with uh, Daryl Banks, but mm. it's a nice sort of. It's a nice sort of contrast to him, and it doesn't look it doesn't look uh, completely off model or out of place. Yeah, I think uh, the the issue before this is the one where he and Donna Troy break up if i'm Mm -hmm. not mistaken right yes i think that was the first issue where i ever saw his artwork yeah i'm not mistaken and 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 i ever and and i really right from the get-go i I liked his i liked his his art well he had a he had a really sort of nice clean look it wasn't really sketchy um banks's artwork was a bit more was a bit more old school. This is sort mm-hmm. of a modern for the times, and it's got a lot of nice curves. And another thing that I want to comment about is the the fact that the coloring has definitely improved to the '90s. I think they're getting into a lot more of the digital coloring, and we've seen that. So yeah. the coloring on this, you know, the different shades of uh, Kyle's costume just really good. So. Yeah, it matches this very well. And this is around the time where you forget how many solid artists were working for dc in the 90s because we whenever we think of the 90s we think of you know the anybody you you're mcfarland and lee and liefeld but also all the people who were ripping them off and and dc's annuals and quarterlies and some of their miniseries and stuff definitely had some of those guys going but i think of um graham nolan doing some batman work i think of mike waringo on the flash and oh yeah uh, the, the the Superman artist at the time, you know, Stuart Immerman would be starting right around now, and I, I loved his take on Superman. And you know, I'm just I'm looking at I'm looking at the Mike's Amazing World page uh, of what was out that month, and I'm seeing where you actually have some really really good, even like you said, even old school type of artists. Uh, and then you still do have your, you know, um, there's Extreme Justice uh-huh. <laughs> and, and the oh, Firebrand right. miniseries and things like that. So yeah, we we were still we were still trying to recover <laughs> from the uh, the whole yeah. age of the Bloodlines things. As as uh, I covered a couple of weeks ago, we had a Guy Gardner issue that was another look at the uh, DC universe, and it was uh, a lot of the bloodlines characters were still there. We still had Nightblade and loose cannon and characters uh-huh. like that. So we're still, we're still dealing with the very nineties aping the image books, but this is a nice, uh, this is a nice departure from that. Yes. Yes. And I, and I love the first page. I know Batman and a gargoyle has, uh, it's, it's, but it's, done, but it's a great shot. It's iconic. Batman looks dynamic. Yes. I'm glad that he doesn't have the scowled cape yet, that it doesn't have the little yeah. points on the end. I like the broad shoulders on it, but he looks 
he looks dynamic. Pelletier does a great job here. I had to look, and and I'd have to go back. I know that around this time they were they were changing the color scheme on his costume, mm-hmm. or at least making it darker than that classic blue and gray that you'd see in like you know the the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez praise, praise be his name um, licensing stuff mm-hmm. and and I know the beginning of Troika they had like a gimmick cover where it was like you know I don't know foil or touch and feel out but it was the 90s and i know that when morris grant morrison takes over jla howard porter really draws him to look like almost like he did in the in the burton in the movies mm-hmm. especially batman returns batman and batman returns here it i i couldn't i couldn't tell whether or not that that the coloring was spot on with that. And it's really not that big of a deal. It's, it's a nitpick more than anything. Cause yeah. I think it's just slightly darker than, than usual. Yeah. And I think the one thing that, and I remember, uh, Andy and Michael talking about this around their coverage of the Troika storyline over at mm-hmm. Hey Kids comics was the one thing that they got rid of was the, the underpants. They made his costume all a sort of, gray. <coughs> yeah. And uh, he still he still has the yellow and black bat symbol on his chest. Mm-hmm. So they haven't gone to the just all black one yet. But I yeah, love it's it. it's a dynamic look for the Dark Knight here on this page. I love the yellow and black bat symbol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm 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 not a fan of this this the plain bat the way the way it's been done. And oh yeah, that's because I grew up with the yellow and black well, bat symbol. It's it's a it's a nice design, and even though even though it is kind of a campy idea that it's there so that to force villains to aim at his chest where he's got it armored, which I've heard is sort of the design. I like the design of it. It looks, yeah. it, and if it's coming out at you at night and he's coming out from the darkness, that's the first thing you see that's going to creep you out. Yeah. Um, the checkered gang is what happens when a ska band can't get enough gigs. <laughs> I was asked to to a life of crime. I was going to mention these guys are just he, this is not a Batman foe that is going to carry on into the book. This is a complete one shot. And uh, again, the artwork here is kind of a cheat because I think this might be uh, some digital coloring here because it looks like they probably just made all the artwork a you know, one shade or like a green screened it and then just put a checkerboard pattern because there's no, especially (laughs) if you look on page two, that panel where they're all tied up by the, uh, uh, ring construct, the checkerboard pattern is just straight across. Somebody hit the paint bucket. (laughs) Yes. Someone hit the fill button. Exactly. And it just, you know, filled in that area. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I, I didn't notice that. That is, I'm looking at page four. With the be- the big guy getting oh yeah over yeah you're right yeah that's that's just pretty pretty hideous but yeah. uh, of course you get Kyle uh, I want to say on page three here you get Kyle and this is a common thing for a Green Lantern getting hit on the head and knocked out so mm-hmm. we have to have that in the book that happens every once in a while he's but he's um no pun intended he's green to the superhero <laughs> That's true. business and it's it's a rookie mistake mm-hmm. um and and you're messing up in front of batman of all people which is just not you know yeah that doesn't really that really doesn't endure you to or endure you to the character because yeah you don't want to flop up between, you know in front of the batman because yeah exactly it's not gonna look good for you if you don't have any more moving on to page five where 
Robin comes into the book. This is a really dynamic shot, but this is also pretty impractical for Robin. He he he, <laughs> he smashes through the windscreen of uh, essentially like a a 52 or maybe a 63, you know, caddy convertible. Yeah. And the windscreen is tiny and it's a convertible. He could have popped in over it and smashed the guy. Mm. And it look from the way it looks, you know, he's going to scissor him Robin's going to scissor himself in half, you know, with the uh, top of the windscreen there. So, and not only that, you know, I, I physics was not my subject in high school, but mm-hmm. the car is moving, right? Yes. So, wouldn't the speed of the car, his momentum, wouldn't he like basically hit this guy and then flap on the hood and knock himself out yes. on the hood of the car? Well, he's, he's kind of flapping around in the wind. <laughs> this is not going to work. He, he he swings in. He would crash through the windshield. The top of the windshield, which I guess is metal, would hit him in the gut and either yeah. you know knock the wind out of him or possibly you know I hope it wouldn't bisect him. But you know it would have been so much easier to just come in over it. And, you know, knock him out that way. But, you know, it's a dynamic look with them crashing the windshield. So I guess, you know, dynamism over, you know, reality. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm looking. And, and, and at least he shut the guy, you know, he shut mm-hmm. the guy up in the zoot suit up, you know. Mm-hmm. Fat, not faster than no cherry caddy. Me and the diamonds, like, ugh. Punch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, they were, they were... They were either ska band or horrible Elvis, you know, impersonator ripoffs. Rejected members of the Brian Setzer Orchestra. <laughs> I was thinking the Cherry Pop and Daddy. Daddy. Right now, <laughs> that works as well. Oh, the swing revival of the late 90s. <laughs> oh, yes. Poor, poor, uh, was it Brian Setzer? Yeah. Sir, yeah. yeah. And I like the Stray Cats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was nice when the Stray... I, I enjoyed the Stray Cats, too, but Brian Setzer doing the whole sort of zoot-zoot, you know, yeah. swing band type stuff. I just couldn't get into that. But um, Just a, a comment. Uh, when when Dan Jurgens was doing his Teen Titans book, was it 96, 97, 97, 98 or so? We ran for about 24 issues, and in all honesty, I found it, it's actually pretty underrated. There's a part, like, right in the middle of the series where one of the team members dies and they kind of split up. And there's a series of specials, they call them double shots, where each member of the team is teamed up with a different hero. And Argent, who is... um, She's the Jersey girl who shoots kind of like light plasma rays or something. Okay. I'm not. I. I. It's been so long since I've read them, and I can't exactly remember her. Uh, her uh, power. She has a special with Robin, and it's almost exactly like this, where he's staking something out. She comes in and and you know attacks the bad guys or something, and he, you know, gives her grief for basically making them noticed in a way that you know, isn't going to help because they have to get the bigger guy kind of along the lines of how Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, their first meeting way back in, it was like Batman four sixteen, hmm. where Jason busts in on a bunch of, on what he thinks is a drug plant and 
you know, he was impatient and what have you. It's just kind of funny because I read this and I'm like, wait, Robin gives Argent kind of the same <laughs> le- oh. lecture. He doesn't want to teach her, you know, and, and what have you. And it's about a year or two from now, but it's just kind of funny how it's almost like a trope of, well, of that. That's that. that's kind of the thing. You get Batman is the is the very grim and determined person and that he's got a plan and that he's looking at the bigger picture. And when, mm-hmm. you know, you get these characters, you want to just go in and bust up crime and not yeah. really look at the overall big picture. It, it messes with his, with his, with his way of doing things. Yeah. So I, yeah. I can see how that would be upsetting to him, but yeah. yeah. Um, of course on page five, we get the, the terse almost, proto morris and batman of scowling and being intimidating and of course kyle being yes as you mentioned kind of green uh is rightfully intimidated yeah and and on page seven tim's trying so hard not to be condescending Mm -hmm. well and i like i like tim on this page i think he's trying to be encouraging and he realizes that kyle might not be might not be a, a very experienced at it. And I mm. like the fact that he's trying to be a, a counterpoint to the Batman, that he's trying to be to say that, you know, if you're going to do this hero thing, it's going to work out, but maybe Batman's not the person to be looking to for, you know, advice, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, the styles between Batman and Green Lantern don't necessarily mesh. No, you know, I, Bat, well, Batman is more of a street-level person, and yeah. Lantern is, is, has always been a more space-based one. So, yeah. And even though that they've started out Kyle sort of as a, you know, as a denizen of New York and taking on, you know, characters, uh, street-level crimes in New York, his his real – when he really starts going, it's a lot of space-based stuff. So yeah. they, they do work in, in different uh, universes, essentially. I like how immature Kyle is with the bat signal. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... and it's a it's a nice it's a nice showing of Kyle still a young guy. He's mm-hmm. still I assuming he's probably in his mid twenties right now, and so this is one of those things that you would think that a kind of late teen, well, obviously late teen, you know, a person in his mid twenties would do to to just be kind of snarky and not really douchey, but just take the piss out of Batman because yeah. you know, it is kind of a jerk thing to do making a green lantern signal appear over the bat signal. It's, it's Batman walking away. And when Batman doesn't see when Batman's out of sight, Kyle turning around and just throwing <laughs> up the middle finger because he's just, <laughs> you know, and, and you can't show that in a code approved book. So you're showing this, but it's basically what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I and I like it. It's done. Yeah. It's done with humor, and I don't think it's done maliciously. But yeah, yeah. every once in a while, you're like, "Geez, Batman is such a jerk." <laughs> he can be. And you know, if you say that, he's gonna turn around. He's gonna hear you, and he's gonna turn around and punch you. So that's a bad. What thing. did you say? <laughs> <laughs> um, the next page we get kind of mopey. Kyle is, you know, he's he's had his little bit in the sun, but then he rings up uh, for some reason, uh, like a. 50s diner. diner and you know obviously last issue he uh had his breakup with donna troy which um didn't really work out so well for him but you know it was it was a good issue but yeah now because kyle decided to 
sketch the really hot model that was in his apartment uh, yeah. kind of messed up his relationship with Donna. I don't think it was ever going to last anyway. He was a he was a rebound. She had gone through this divorce and mm-hmm. you know as as there aren't that many divorces in 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 superheroes comics from what I understand. And she and she was with this older guy, I mean, if you look at the relationship between her and Terry Long, you know, it's she was almost mature for her age as mm-hmm. a result. And so she obviously rebounded with a guy who was probably around the same age as her, maybe a little bit younger, and definitely kind of the almost like the polar opposite of, of her husband. Because her husband was a college professor, and, you know, it's this sort of I don't even I even can't describe it, but but basically Kyle's the guy she just probably just wanted to fool around, and then when she was like, all right, yeah, kind of done fooling well, around. It's it's interesting because you know even though this is coming out afterwards, I haven't released the episode yet. Thomas mm-hmm. DJ mentions the same thing. Uh, he was on issue seventy talking about the breakup between Don and Kyle, and it's yeah. he says that you know even though that she is more mature and has a lot more experience than Kyle when. She's written by Ron Mars. He sometimes kind of brings her down to that sort of immature level that uh, that her age would uh, promote her at. So it, it is kind of odd that she has had this sort of experience and this lifestyle and has been married to a younger man. And then it, eventually, you know, she turns around and acts sort of juvenile. But, uh, yeah, I'm of two minds on the whole Donna and Kyle relationship. Yeah, it could be rebound for both of them, but mm-hmm. in some ways it it kind of works. But yeah, I, I also agree with people who say that Kyle is perhaps one of the luckiest, you know, people in the DC universe because first, you know, after having his hot girlfriend Alex who passed away, not only does he get to uh, be with Donna Troy, but then he gets Jade. Um, so there's uh, Kyle has his. Uh, as his way through the uh, hotties in the DC universe. The the episode, I, I just recorded an episode this morning of Taking Flight, and I referred to Dick Grayson as the Scott Bayo of the DC universe, <laughs> because if there's anybody who's luckier than Kyle Rayner, it's Dick Grayson, if you've seen that. Oh, <laughs> he yes. Goes, he goes from, from, he's got Betty Kane chasing after him, and then he goes through this string of redheads, you know, he he's he shacks up with Starfire. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. the only person he doesn't go out with is Donna Troy. Yeah, that's that is kind of surprising because of his relationship with her in the Titans. And I, you would think that, you know, something would have happened with that. You know, she's the best friend who people always say that it will it should happen. But the both of them, I think, kind of look at it and are like, nah, it's. It's just, you know, it's almost like their brother. I, I picture I picture them actually kissing kind of like the scene where Lorraine kisses Marty in Back to the Future where she pulls back and says it's almost like I felt like I was kissing my brother. <laughs> it's just, I just, it would, uh. I see how it worked, but it, it wouldn't. And then, um, I mean, granted, all of what we're talking about is going to be rendered moot in about 12 issues of Wonder Woman when John Byrne decides to completely erase her. Um, after driving Terry Long literally off a cliff. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that'll that'll. John yeah. Burt's good for something. Um, but no, he. I, I I'm I'm actually rereading some of those issues because I was not happy with it when it yeah. first came out. I'm like, ah, give it another shot because it's it's on Comicsology and it's pretty cheap. So Donna and, Troy's Donna Troy's past is so messed up. Uh, I I talked to Luke Giaconetti and you know it's almost as bad as it's almost bad as if not worse than Hawkman's continuity. So yeah. there you go. Um, moving on to page 10, you yeah. get the introduction of Sentinel or Alan Scott or Green Lantern, whatever you want, and his, his 90 spawn cape. So that's awesome. Is this the first time he's been associated with Gotham? Cause I know later on, um, I, especially like in Greg Rucka's detective comics run, it's been established that he was a vigilante in Gotham city years before Batman. I don't know if this is a part I'd probably have to go back to listen to some of uh, the tales of the JSA that uh, Mike Bailey and Scott Gardner have done. But I do recall in the golden age, I think uh, Alan Scott actually lived in Gotham. And in fact, we get a reference here later on the book to the uh, GBS building or the uh, no, the GBC building, Mm -hmm. which is the Gotham Broadcasting Company. And basically, I think he is either the editor or the manager of this uh, company, which oh. is essentially like the sort of CNN or hmm. TBS of the uh, uh, Gotham of Gotham City. So, gotcha. So I think I think he's been around. I think it's been sort of established that he's been a citizen of Gotham, if not necessarily the superhero, the main superhero of the city. Mm-hmm. So there you okay. go. I guess you know, just moving on to. Page 13, uh, we get the, I guess, the revamped Harlequin. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, this is something I like about Pelletier. He draws uh, he draws very nice women. And Harlequin here, uh, this isn't uh, this isn't the Harlequin, you know, that uh, from the Golden Age, who's Alan Scott's wife. This is the. Uh, I guess the newly revamped Harlequin that happened in Underworld Unleashed. Uh, I didn't read all the crossovers to this, so I'm not certain other than yeah. from what I read on, you know, like a Wikipedia page that, you know, this is, you know, I guess Molly, his wife, was upset that Alan, you know, was sort of de-aged throughout yeah. the zero hour thing. So she made a deal with Neron, which occurred which made this uh, rendition of her come out and uh, Alan's upset because even though she's all hot and stuff, it's not the Molly he loves. So he's doing something to try and, you know, get her soul back into her body or something. I don't know. It's, it's it's all comic book wonkiness. Yeah. It seems like she kind of gave into the sort of dark side of her personality anyway, because Harlequin was a reformed villain Mm-hmm. So, yeah, essentially she had given up the whole. I, I guess they they had some run-ins with her in the JSA issues, uh, especially with the the old Green Lantern, you know, the Alan Scott Green Lantern stuff. And she eventually yeah. ended up marrying Alan Scott and reforming. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but uh, uh, moving on to yeah. uh, uh, to page fifteen, that's where my next note is about the uh, the creepy skull. I <laughs> that is. That is right out of like an Evil Dead movie, and I'm sorry, 
I remember what Alex looks like. I don't think Alex had this sort of orange hair. I but think still. it was longer, too, from what I remember. Uh-huh. It's, it's a different cut. So the fact that Kyle recognizes this as Alex uh, is is weird. But, uh, yeah, it is a frightening panel. Uh, you know, this little fight, it's it's done pretty well because mm-hmm. it's a this is more of a psychological and emotional fight than it is actually a physical fight throughout mm-hmm. this entire four or five pages we have and it's it's illustrated um, gorgeously mm-hmm. yeah the, uh, like I said I really like Pelletier's art he does a nice he's got nice really clean lines and uh, yeah it's it's not a it's not a drag down, a knockdown, drag out fight. It is very, you know, messing with the characters' minds, especially here. In fact, uh, on page sixteen, we see Kyle having to ring up a sort of weird, almost medieval mask to cover his yeah. eyes uh, to make sure that he's able to fight the uh, the creepy tongued, evil dead, giant head thing. So. Yeah, and I noticed that last panel on 16 when he puts them on there. That's a very 90s haircut, Kyle. <laughs> that's like Chandler Bing. <laughs> oh, he'll be there for you. Yes. Um, next page, I guess, I. it's a neat design, but uh, it's also, again, very 90s. The, the sort of gun that Kyle rings <laughs> up to uh, shoot the little grapple line thing. Yeah. Although it it but on some level it works with him having been an artist mm-hmm. and um, I know at various times he has assignments where he's working on designs for like toy lines and these mm-hmm. sorts of things so it would be something in the back of his head that he had been doing you know designing weapons for the latest line of action figures for well, like whomever and and this kind of, looks like a this looks like it'd be something that would come out of a, a really sort of 90s toy line a sort of uh, mm-hmm. thing that would shoot out a disc or something like that yeah that you, you'd attach it to the character's arm and it was he was supposed to be able to move the arm around with it but the the way you know the thing would always constantly fall off because mm-hmm. it would never actually stay on the arm of the yeah. character well, that and it would also weigh down the character, so the character couldn't stand up stand unless up. he like you know yeah. put his leg in the pegs on the board on the. It's like with the with the old GI Joe action figures. You if you put the gun in them, the gun would never actually stay up. So you twist the gun so that it was held differently in their thumbs. But this would cause the thumb to weaken, and eventually the thumb of the GI Joe figure would break. <laughs> um, I don't understand how. You know, wrapping her up would cause all the nightmares to go away, but you know, I'll just go with it. Maybe it breaks her concentration. Could be. I'll That's give her the, that. The no prize there. But then, you know, the next couple of pages, we get the whole soul transference thing, which I guess is a new uh, Green Lantern power. So. Yeah, he there. was always more magic based, anyway, right? Yeah, and I guess that would make sense because uh, Alan Scott's connection to the whole Guardians in the Universe is tenuous at most. They try mm-hmm. in some way to connect him, but in it works it works best if you think of him as a separate character from the the Green Lantern of you know the Hal Jordan, you know yeah. Guy Gardner, John Stewart era. So yeah, it's an odd little ritual, but it 
Mars and uh, Pelletier sell it on page 18 with her protests being like more sad than angry. Mm-hmm. She's not rant. She's not monologuing at him. No, you know she's not. She's not. You know, you will bow down before me, Jor-El. You and one day your heirs. You know, she's not screaming at him. She's scared mm-hmm. and very sad. To this please don't. You know, and I think that sells this scene more than any other thing in the in the in the scene because you don't need the superhero science or magic explanation as to what the heck he's doing yeah this you know you realize that he's taking away whatever she had wanted mm-hmm. or, well, or you, that side wanted. you get the kind of idea that you know he, in a way that he is you know kind of taking the life of this new harlequin mm-hmm. and it's understandable that she would be worried i mean she just sort of came into existence and this is all she knows and alan scott is taking away her existence essentially. Yeah. Even though you know her existence shouldn't have been there because it was done with a sort of you know quote unquote deal with the devil. So yeah. It's it, it is a it is a more powerful moment than you'd get in a lot of books. So yeah. yeah. Nicely done. And I like the uh, uh, the difference between the lantern constructs of uh, Alan Scott and. Uh, Cal Rayner, I've often mentioned that you get the sort of flame looks uh, around Alan, and it's yeah. it, it also gives the sort of you know again demonic uh, hellfire type thing going on with the mm-hmm. Alan Scott green flame. Yeah, he just the way the way he and I know this is the way he was during this era as Sentinel. He's very this matinee idol looking, drawn to be this very chiseled person who. I know he's kept artificially young, and at least the way Pelletier's drawing it, he looks like he's artificially young. Mm-hmm. You know, he looks like there's something off about his youthful appearance. Not enough to be disturbing, but enough to notice, especially in um, you know, well, in somebody's. He scenes. looks very. He looks very. Cla- his face looks very classic, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1930s, 1940s leading man feel. Yeah. But the way his body looks, it's very 1990s, very uh, athletic, very, mm-hmm. you know, he's done a lot of sit-ups uh, type yes. look. So it, there is that sort of disconnect between the look of his uh, face and the look of his body. It does give that sort of unnatural look to him that he is out of place in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, all I've got to say uh, is for the last few pages, which are just kind of an epilogue for it, which uh, I guess will be taken up in the next few issues because we get uh, a Dark Star. I'm assuming that's a Dark Star. He's in uniform. Yeah, it's a Dark I, I never, Star. I never read the Dark Star books outside of what little I had to do for crossover stuff with the Green. Yeah, Land. me too. I had the last issue, I think, too. Just to <laughs> but uh, we get him getting. <laughs> In a sort of, uh, and again, not really on, we get an on-panel death of uh, on that last page where the uh, this villain snaps the person's neck. But it's all done in silhouette and shadows, so it's not as gory as possible. And I'm trying to remember, I haven't read ahead, but I'm trying to remember who these villains are. But you look at them, and I can't tell from... You 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 know that one of them is obviously male and one of them is obviously female because they've got high heels on and of course the superhero superheroines have to have high heels but uh, yeah this is uh, 
interesting, interesting little sort of throwaway thing to sort of get you uh, engaged in what's going to come on next. And, and and in all honesty, I think that this is how you do these things sometimes. Um, there are some times where they, they do too much setup for, for future issues in, in – in, in books and it gets in the way of the story. This is not a nice little, just kind of a two page epilogue that works and we can move on. And I'm trying to remember this storyline. And I think I remember who the big bad is, but I don't, okay. think I don't want to spoil it. So well, I'll, I, I'll, I'll keep certain. it in my head and I'll see if I'm right in a few episodes. <laughs> I'm pretty certain I will have to follow this up and figure out who yeah. this is. in a few because I know looking at covers, that's basically what I do is, uh, yeah. To check ahead, and there's a cover that says, I think, in a couple issues of Who Will Die, and it's got uh, Kyle Rayner, it's got Alan, uh, Kyle Rayner, it's got uh, John Stewart, and Donna Troy. Troy. On it. So, yeah, it, it's a lead into 75, I think. Mm-hmm. Is, I guess they're leading up to the 75th issue with this. And yeah. So, but uh, at, since you have the actual. Uh, paper comic let's go yes. ahead and take a look at some of the ads in the books uh yeah. by the way i never noticed this in 20 almost 20 years after picking these comics up here and there i never noticed that on ringside for the letter column mm-hmm. the girl holding the round whatever yeah the number of the issue that they're talking about is in the in the paper i yeah, never I just, noticed that yeah i just noticed that <laughs> recently i haven't commented on that but yeah this is the wow. they they give you which is kind of nice because it yeah. gives you the issue that the the letters are talking about here yeah so that's kind of cool you know you can go you know i guess this if i were covering letters this would be neat because i could say okay this actually comes from this issue so, yeah because i was doing uh somebody wrote me a letter to my podcast and was asking about Something in, regarding Deathstroke and Terra, and I, I went back and looked at issues because I knew that in, in a general rule, comics letter columns tend to be about four or five issues behind. Mm-hmm. So this is six seventy one and sixty six. So I will, and then and I was just getting frustrated because there was no letter column, no letter column, no letter column, and then I never got my answer. But uh, if I ever meet Marv Wolfman, maybe I'll ask him. That's a good if, if he remembers. Idea. Right. Um, but for ads, you know, we've got the inside front cover. <laughs> For the Levi's jeans, and uh, I don't get these ads. You know, they had one with uh, guitars, and they had one with uh, dogs, which I guess makes sense because they had you know various uh. loose skins of the dogs. But now they've got like a manwich, a like a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and a hot dog, and you're supposed to match these up with the various bagginess of the jeans. I'm, I'm trying it. I'm trying to figure out. I, I know which one the manwich would add, but I don't know. Like, yeah, the, what's relaxed? Is the PB and J relaxed, or is a hot dog relaxed? I, I don't, don't know. Yeah, it's. I think they're really stretching for this this ad. It's yeah, and uh, the fact that they're also promoting a hot dog with the yeah, I know young boys <laughs> pants that that's disturbing. I don't yeah, think about that. Yeah. Um. Moving on a few pages in, I loved this game. This was oh, really ridiculous. Have you ever played this? No, I haven't. I, I my gaming, my video game experience kind of died out as they went to 16-bit systems. Really? And well, and also around this time, because I never owned a 16-bit system, but my friends did. And around this time, um, we were primarily playing either Madden 
or NHL mm-hmm. uh, 94, 95, whatever oh, yeah. year it might have been. He'll be playing a lot of NHL 95 and uh, and would play, say, like Mortal Kombat. But other than that, we never really got into a lot of other. Yeah, other well, I, the, this is an ad for <laughs> Earthworm Jim 2, mm-hmm. which was just a ridiculous platformer game. And it was very it, it was it was done by Shiny Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, who did a lot of very amusing computer games, and it was just a really fun game. But I will agree with you. I I played a lot of Mortal Kombat, and <laughs> NHL '94 and '95. Those were fun games. But it's an ad for Earthworm Jim too, and it's now with 50% more beef, pork, and puppies. I oh, think well, one of the things that that you did in the game was there would be this bad guy who was in a farmhouse, and he would throw puppies out the uh, top. <laughs> top thing in the farmhouse and you as earthworm jim would have to catch the puppies on a trampoline and bounce them over to safety and if you <laughs> didn't the puppies sort of splatted on the ground i oh, mean God. not not in a horrible you know like uh disturbing way but yeah. it was it was all in sort of good fun yeah uh the next page leads us to a very 90s thing with uh Power Chrome uh, Legends 95 uh, Premier Edition trading cards. Super premium chromium trading cards. And the poses on Flash and um, Superboy are very 90s looking. Oh, yeah. This is then this is a, this is the 90s Superboy with the uh, the haircut that actually makes Kyle's look kind of uh, reserved. Yeah, Tom Grummet was the only person who could really do Superboy. I will agree with you there. The, and I think the, yeah. I, I don't know if this is a Waringo Flash. It kind of looks well. No, it's not as no. Waringo's was a bit more blocky, but more cartoony. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is a pretty muscled Flash. Good lord, that thigh is mm-hmm. huge. The the Wonder Woman in the set is John Byrne. Oh yeah, that's from the cover of Wonder Woman number one. And the Batman, it's a takeoff on Neil Adams. I don't mm-hmm. know if they use the Neil Adams image. And I want to say the Superman is, I want to say that was taken from a cover of the quarterly book he had. Was it Man of Tomorrow? Oh, yeah. That was by so, uh, Grummet and Hazelwood? Or am I maybe? thinking? Uh, it looks good. Possibly, yeah. It's but yeah, it's, it is a very 90s thing, especially the yeah. the chromium cover <laughs> cards. Uh, it's probably went for about five bucks a pack too. Oh lord! <laughs> probably now you can find you know like boxes of them for five bucks on eBay. I bet my my LCS has a big long card box that says five cents a card. I'll have to see if any of them <laughs> are in there. If you can find me a Chromium Superboy, I will pay you. I will let you know. Uh. I forgot this was a game, and I wish I could have forgot this was a movie. <laughs> Moving on to uh... some movies kill entire genres. <laughs> this was one of them. <laughs> yes. Well, and unfortunately, the pirate movie really wasn't you know all that exciting until Johnny Depp stepped in and to do well, cause, it. Because the last time we had a pirate movie, oh wait, we well, had Hook. Yeah, and all right. Then before that, we had the pirates. Pirate yeah, the pirate the movie. Pirate. Which was... But this was uh, an ad for the Cutthroat Island game. The uh, Rennie Harlan, uh, Gina Davis, Davis. and who, Matthew Modine? Yes. Um, yes, he was in the... Uh, 
not a good movie and I have no idea whether the game was good or not. I'm going to assume if it was anything like the movie, the game was awful. Yeah. Uh, next page, we get a, uh, ad for the, is it the advanced dungeon is dragons? No, it's just the general dungeons, the dragons game, but it's a nice image of a really huge dragon reaching out and breathing fire on this, uh, warrior holding up a shield and, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, uh, works well in the comics, and this is pretty nice art. And uh, I played it at the time. I can't remember whether this was the uh, revamping where they had moved to the second edition stuff, but the artwork here is pretty nice. I'll give it that. Yeah, it is. It's pretty nice. Uh, the next ad we get Cyber Mage, uh, and uh, I guess D.W. Bradley Cyber Mage, if that's supposed to mean anything to you. Uh, not it, really. <laughs> it looks like. It's a computer game? Yeah, I guess it's a PC game. I guess uh, what says designed by uh, D.W. Bradley of Wizardry fame. And Wizardry was essentially a sort of, it was a dungeon crawler type game where okay. it was kind of, I guess it's kind of a, a cross between Doom and mm-hmm. your uh, sort of stereotypical Dungeons and Dragons type game where you walk along these dungeons and walk through this maze and, gotcha. you know, fight things. Yeah. You it's, can tell this is the 90s, though. The first bullet says first-person point of view in VGA or SVGA. <laughs> and, and then the bottom left-hand corner, get your copy at CompUSA. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, CompUSA, the, the computer superstore, which yes. is, out of, is out of business now, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, next page is an ad uh, I really like. I remember this... Uh, I remember the story pretty fondly. It's, uh, it says at the top, whose will be done? And you've got this sort of stylized version of a, an American eagle fla- trailing the stars and stripes and a bat. And it's for the uh, it's for the comic Kingdom Come, which I didn't remember was an Elseworlds comic. I thought it was just stereotypical. I thought it was just a uh, – they just released it as a separate uh, imprint. No, it was it was Elseworlds, and then I think after it had, it was phenomenally successful. DC made several attempts to weave it into continuity, either through an alternate universe or, or whatever, and because then we would get the Kingdom and mm-hmm. the various quote unquote sequels or attempts at bringing it in. But yeah, it was originally in, in Elseworlds, and and I love this uh, this yeah, storyline. It's a, it's a great story and it's a, it's a really nice stylized image. I've got to assume it's Alex Ross's art. Yeah. But it is, it's obviously uh, supposed to draw images of Batman and Superman clashing. Yeah. But yeah, nice image here. Nice nice ad. Mm-hmm. The next one we get is for the Simon Kirby books. We've get uh, I guess these were sort of uh, trade paperbacks of uh, a bunch of Simon Kirby's early work in Fighting American and the Kid Cowboys of Boys Ranch. Yeah, I'm wondering how popular that is. Uh, I guess if you're wanting to be a Kirby completist, this would be something you'd want to have. But there are six issues of each, so I don't think they <laughs> really. And the price, I mean, uh, thirty-five bucks for six issues. They hard wow. co- they're hard covers. Okay, well, but even still, then, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, that'd be like almost sixty. Uh, well, maybe not sixty, but at least fifty bucks now for just six issues. That's yeah. Eh. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, the next page is a uh, DC <clears throat> subscription page, and mm-hmm. we've got uh, it's. I think we've. Co- I think I covered this before. It's the Batman. Yeah, and you get the annual for free. Yeah, they get the annual for free. That's always nice. Um, I'm, it's a nice way to draw people in, people who don't have comic book shops in their town to to get their comics delivered to them so that they're not missing an issue. I'm, yeah. It's kind of neat, but I'm looking at some of the titles here. I know that uh, Guy Gardner Warrior, sadly, is going to be going away soon. Yeah, they've whittled it down. I mean... Yeah, the only one that I see that, you know, probably wouldn't last you the entire 12 issues would be the Guy Gardner Warrior one if you uh, ordered that now. So uh. Uh, I think after a few years, DC ends subscriptions altogether. Oh, OK. I don't I'd have to I'd have to start flipping through comics and, and kind of find the point where you stop seeing subscription ads. I think they hold on for a few more years. I actually subscribed to. It was one of the Batman titles. It was probably de- it was either Batman or Detective very in the very very early '90s, and the only disadvantage was that you'd get the comics, um, almost like when they were destined for the newsstand instead of the direct comic store. So I I almost felt like I was like about a, a couple of weeks behind. Lord, um, on getting them, and and it, it got frustrating. And then I you know because they were like a gift subscription, and um, so. After a while, I just let the subscription run out and put Detective or whatever I was getting on my pull list. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, the next ad we get is, I don't know, the art here is kind of stylized and not really to my taste, but it's uh, the Skybox version of the uh, trading cards for the uh, DC versus Marvel crossover. Mm-hmm. Which now, was out around this time, I think. I, yeah, I'm guessing that it started out. In fact, it just started. Um, Last week, I, again, this is in the future of the past. Uh, last week, I covered uh, the story Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, uh, Unholy Alliances, which was uh-huh. sort of the beginning crossover of the whole Marvel versus DC thing. Mm-hmm. And basically, I didn't know, but at the end of it, there was this sort of yellow light coming out of this box. And uh, Michael Bradley, who talked with me about it, was uh, the person who told me that this was the beginning of the whole sort of crossover event between DC and Marvel. So these are the trading cards that uh, came out of this. And you've got uh, Batman versus Captain America, Hulk versus Superman, Superboy versus Spider-Man, Wolverine versus Lobo, typical, and Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman versus Storm, which mm-hmm. eventually led to the Amalgam universe, which was some some neat stories done by yeah. some really big creators. I mean, they had Mark Wade. I heard they had uh, Peter David doing some of them, so this is kind of neat that you've got uh, trading cards for that. Uh, <laughs> then, and unfortunately, Biodo. Oh dear lord! I, the the only thing that cracks me up about it, I've never seen this movie. I will never see this movie. Good thing, good thing for you. First, William Atherton is in this movie, mm-hmm. and William Atherton who if you're unfamiliar with him was um the 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 skeezy newscaster in Die Hard mm-hmm. the honesty reporter in Die Hard gets punched by Bonnie Bedelia and he's in Ghostbusters he's the city councilman who shuts down the the reactor yes um 
he is known for playing yeah. the biggest jerks well, in all of the 80s yeah. movies. Kevin Smith wanted him for the role of Mr. Svenning in Mallrats, who was played by Michael Rooker. Oh, yeah. Atherton refused to do the movie and goes on to do Biodome. <laughs> I, I will watch Mallrats any day of the week. I, I'm one of I, I'm one of like the five people who saw it in the theater. And I actually my, my wife loves the movie. I, I really like the movie. I think it's 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 held up better than like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, for instance, which I'll give you that. is tough to get through. But you turn down Mallrats to do Biodome. <laughs> Uh, um, I guess I guess the money was on Polly yeah, Shore at say. the time. So yeah. uh, sad that people put money there. Mm. <sighs> but yeah, and and obviously Stephen Baldwin's career has really sprung forward from that one. Yeah, yeah. he's. I could understand why he'd embrace religion after <laughs> having to deal with uh, Polly Shore. He's he's the he's the one who's the very religious one. I, I can't he is the one. Yeah, he okay. is the one who's the very, very okay, religious that, one. That makes um, sense. Yeah, Daniel's the Daniel's the one who is constantly on celebrity rehab. Yeah, Billy pops up in something every once in a while, and then of course Alex made a career out of Alex. Yeah. Always had a very very solid career. Yeah, well he, he you know he he's a talented actor. I think he yes. can pull off a lot of stuff. And you know, despite the fact that he's doing you know commercials for credit cards, you know, doesn't diminish you know the fact that he's a very talented actor. Oh yeah. Uh. Back outside page, we get an advertisement for a very weird, a very weird game. It's essentially a a shooter like a, the Terminator arcade game, mm-hmm. except it stars Aerosmith, and it's the uh, Revolution X game. And uh, it's released for uh, pretty much all the systems, including the the uh, brand new Sega Saturn system, which uh, was the very short lived. Uh, Sega, I think it was a 64-bit system, I would say. It was kind of the premiere uh, before the, you know, it was supposed to complete, compete with the uh, Sony PlayStation. But unfortunately, it kind of uh, just didn't work out. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a neat game, I guess. Uh, you like those sort of shooter games. I remember seeing it in an arcade format. Um, I want to say... Uh, like it, I want to say of all places, I saw it like at a highway rest stop, mm-hmm. like on ninety on I ninety five or something. I'd started, and I remember seeing the game and and not playing it, but just kind of like staring at it. And it, I think it did have a gun attached to it. Yeah, it's one of those games like the the Terminator, um, yeah, like the Terminator two game where you have a gun where you fire the bullets and then you have a side trigger that allows you to launch grenades and stuff like that except yeah instead of fighting terminators i guess you fight you know aerosmith or which, you are aerosmith oh you are aerosmith oh. Or, or aerosmith is helping you and you're fighting against like some sort of military dictatorship or something because yeah. you know it's rock and roll man it's maybe you're fighting roll. against the forces of Winger, who knows? If you're I'm sure, up, I'm, I'm sure it's better than the Journey video game. Oh sweet Jesus! <laughs> I that that was so bad. Bouncing around on drums as members of the Journey, oh. trying to. Oh, that was. <laughs> but that does it for this issue. Uh, if you are ready, I'm gonna go take a quick break. 
And when we come back, we will uh, start up our coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 40. Okay. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age, featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we are back. And 
since you didn't know that we had a little Skype problem, we're going to completely forget that and head into our coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 40. It was uh, cover dated March 1996 and released on January 2nd, 1996. The cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. Again, no UK price, so the Leylands could never find this Guy Gardner comic, which might be a blessing, it might be a curse. The title was Good Things Ain't Been Coming in the Packages I've Been Getting. Story was by the ever-awesome Bo Smith. Penciler this time out was Aaron Lepresti. Am I getting that right? I believe so. Okay. Anchor was Dan Davis, colorist Lee Lowridge, letterer Albert Guzman, and editor Eddie Braganza. The story opens with a very possibly nude Guy Gardner, ladies, rolling over in bed, only to discover something poking him in his back. Reaching down, Guy discovers that the something is a green high-heeled boot belonging to a certain Brazilian superhero who might have just spent the night with our protagonist. Donning his swanky warrior's bathrobe, Guy heads downstairs to witness Buck, Wargo, and the gang in full-on, quote-unquote, good-natured ribbing mode. Of course, Guy really isn't in the mood, as he enacts some good-natured chair-tipping to Joey and Buck. Verona also gets in on the ridicule train, saying that the great warrior is to remain pure for his chosen mate. Wondering how his day can get any worse, Guy hears the voice of the one being who can do just that, and more. With stunned looks on their faces, Guy and the crew turn their visages onto the one foe that Guy cannot defeat. Peggy Gardner is mom. Complaining that Guy wrecked her house and turned her cat into cat sickles, Peggy has decided that she would move in with her son and take advantage of the hired help, which she demands mixed drinks and the concierge service money. Wanting to allow Guy and his mother to do some bonding, or maybe wanting to avoid the old bat's wrath, Buck makes a hasty retreat to the lab to check on some of the shipments from overseas. Upon arrival, Buck finds that his field operatives have actually been doing their jobs, as they have delivered a variety of plant specimens necessary for the MacGuffin formula. Cut to an undisclosed location where Rolik Rod directs his cyber apes okay, to obtain the MacGuffin plants for his use. The apes engage stealth mode, enter the lab, dispatch the guards, and head off with a canister labeled Zaire. Fortunately, one of the guards was able to sound the alarm, which sets Guy and the monster hunters off to track down the bugged canister. Ironically, the apes head straight for, wait for it, the Empire State Building, as Guy, Buck, and the rest follow in their stealth helicopter. In the skyscraper, we find Grodd delivering exposition about the contents of the vial, a totem which contains mind-altering drug that once released into the water system of Gorilla City will allow Grodd to control the minds of all the apes living there. Back in the helicopter, the crew discovers that the canister was taken not by humans, but apes, which leads Guy to surmise that they're going to be facing down Gorilla Grodd. The chopper reaches its destination, and the Mon Hunters engage in the Cyber Apes and the ubiquitous Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Lailing, 2011, all rights deserved for this book. The group is handily spanking the monkeys, mm. did there, as Guy makes his way to tackle Grodd. But before the warrior can grapple with the giant Greyback, Grodd puts a mind whammy on our hero, sending him reeling. Feeling the mental assault on the Warrior King, Rona activates a mental block that she shares with Guy, allowing him to give Rod a little bedtime for Bonzo. 
with Grodd in a full Nelson. Guy tells him to have the mechanical monkeys stand down. Grodd complies, but all of a sudden one of the mechanical apes starts beeping. It seems as a backup plan, Grodd had armed one of the cyber apes with enough explosive to take down the building, and now he demands his release in exchange for the lives of the people in the Empire State Building. Angrily, Guy complies with Grodd's demands and lets the apes leave with the canister in exchange for the triggering mechanism. The gorillas leave and Buck rushes to the device to stop the countdown, but Grodd double-crossed him as the control doesn't work to disarm the bomb. Fed up with the monkey business, Guy picks up the beeping baboon and flings it at Grodd's escaping crap, blowing it up real good. Crisis averted, Guy and crew head back to Warriors for the real challenge guy's overbearing mother. is a nice balance well not really balance this shows what i think uh bo smith wanted to do with the guy guarded character all along that he wanted to have these sort of issues where guy was taking down the super villain characters with his band of monster hunters and i like the interaction that we get with uh buck and uh joey and rita mm-hmm. and all the secondary characters in the guy gardener book yeah fighting the gorilla grod and the apes However, a lot of the humor with Guy's mom just really falls short in this book. It, it's bad, like fourth season of a sitcom that needs mm-hmm. something in it, like a ratings boost, you know. Let's, yeah. let's bring in the mother, and, and all of a sudden she's got like every other one-liner because, you know, that's <laughs> what we need. Well, and also this is kind of out of character for Guy's Gardner, Guy Gardner's mom because when she was introduced in the Chuck, Chuck Dixon storyline of mm-hmm. Yesterday's Sins, she was kind of a very passive-aggressive uh, mom who allowed <clears throat> Guy's father essentially to abuse Guy and sort of promote his other brother, Mace. Yeah. So she was never portrayed as a sort of nagging over-the-top stereotype of uh, the obese mother-in-law type character. Yeah. So it's it's out of character, and unfortunately the comedy doesn't work there, but there are some bits in here where the comedy actually does work. So if you're you're ready, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at that. Yeah. Um, I just do want to say, though, because Aaron Lepresti did not do the cover, I hate the cover of this book. Uh, Because it could have been... If you're going for the comedy of his mother showing up, it could have been that sort of like, oh, no, not you, like 80s Marvel type of cover, and it would have been funnier. This just – I don't know. It just doesn't – it 
doesn't work because it looks too hard. It's too nineties. Mm-hmm. I, I know, think I, the giant uh, fist the, or whatever the heck that thing. <laughs> yeah, that is that's just really odd looking, and the spikes growing out of guy's yeah. arm, and of course. Uh, the big gun with the tubes coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Lord, this is just – it's not – but I agree with you. If it would have been one of those sort of silhouettes where it's Guy looking at him going, oh, no, not you, that would have been yeah. perfect for this. Yeah, but... maybe the supporting cast kind of recoiling in heart. I mean, it would they, – yeah, they could have done this uh, – I think Aaron Lopresti could have probably pulled that off too. I think well, it's, it's and, Tony Daniel did this. Yeah, I think uh, – yeah. And Tony Daniels, what more known for like the bat books at the time, but this, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not, it's not good artwork and it's, it is very nineties and guy just looks off and what the hell is wrong with his hair? When did he get a sort of sting slash Wolverine cut? I know. Right. Uh, I, I also noticed that, um, it is by Bo Lepresti and Davis. So Bo Smith has been elevated to first name only, well, you kind of kind of think that the last name of Smith that could pretty yeah. much be you know like yeah. fifty people in the comics industry. So yeah. the the fact that he's he's so awesome that he gets his first name credit, you know, just it, it fits for the book. Yeah. I guess this is uh, something that I don't know whether Dan DiDio and Jeff Johns commented on, but on the first page we get the fact that uh, Guy Gardner might have actually uh, had relations with uh, Fire. Didn't they hate each other? Essentially, yeah. But uh, last issue uh, in number 70, well, not number 70, in number 39, 39. Uh, they had a Christmas party at Guy Gardner's. And essentially mm-hmm. what happened was Guy was feeling kind of down because you know, over the year, Ice had died, his father mm-hmm. had died, his brother had died. So he was, he was feeling really down. And what happened was the Phantom Stranger – got with the specter and the specter essentially took guy to an alternate alternate dimension where he could meet up with his father. And there was a resolution between them. Mm-hmm. And throughout the entire guy Gardner storyline guy had, had problems with his father because throughout his youth guy's father had yeah. been really abusive and he gets to, he gets basically make up with his father. And there's this really touching scene where guy and his father embrace and his father tells guy that he loves him and that he's always loved him. And it's, it's one of those moments that Bo Smith is able to capture and, you know, do really well. But throughout the entire doing all of this, there was a big party going on at warriors sort of akin to what was going on in issue 29 where they had the big Phil Jimenez yeah. kind of thing. And at the end of it, uh, Tora's mom comes in and gives a guy a little sculpture of uh, him and Ice. Unfortunately, it's Ice in her really slutty 90s outfit, but <laughs> you have to do that. Yeah. And Guy bumps into B, and initially they're sort of facing off and really angry, but they both look down at the statue, and they realize that the one thing that they had in common was their uh, relationship with uh, Ice. So uh, it leads to them engaging in a, a kiss under the mistletoe, and of course that sort of leads to, uh, I well, guess, the idea that Guy and Fire, you know, may have uh, done a little bit more than kissing, if you know yeah. what I'm saying. But uh, we get on the next couple of pages the sort of comedy beats, and uh, especially on page three where Guy's just 
where where page two and three where they're taking the mick out of guy yeah, and they're just ribbing him mercilessly oh yeah uh, i mean this is actually good writing for uh for for bo smith i love on page three guy just pushing over not only yeah. joey who's mocking him but uh buck as well i think it, that's it has a really time. good rhythm to it too it's it's very natural mm-hmm. and that's that's what i like about uh bo smith's uh writing is that he does he does very he does over the top fight sequences and he does quippage as well but he also does really sort of nice comedy beats here we don't get to see that that much in the book but it works here the artwork is a bit different than what i've been used to mm-hmm. but i i'm i'm liking it i i know lapresti i guess did a lot of spider-man type stuff and yeah it kind of works here of course then unfortunately we have to get as We've talked about, you know, moving on page four and then page five, the introduction of Guy's mom, which is just really, it's really out of place. The way Guy's mom has been portrayed in the book has been sort of quiet and almost unobtrusive. And now she's just this huge, horrible, you know, almost uh, everybody loves Raymond, you know, stereotype of the nagging mom. Yeah. And she, she has a skull and crossbones tattoo on her ankle. Yeah. I noticed that, that that's also just yeah. out of place. I don't know why that. And it's sad that on the splash was on the splash page here where we get the introduction of guy's mom on the thing. Mm-hmm. The story credits are just really small. I'm wondering if I'm wondering if they're a bit embarrassed with this story <laughs> that they're not wanting to say, yeah, I did this. Uh, please don't put this in with my pantheon of stories. This is not going in the portfolio. No, this is not. This is not one of the ones <laughs> that I'm going to promote the promote my uh, work. I love how Buck goes. To, he's like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go check on. I'm going to go do some work. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to get out of here." I, I, and I love Buck as a character. I wish, like I've said, I always had wished that Bo Smith would have been able to do the kind of stories that he wanted to do, which was sort of guy as a pulp hero, two-fisted man of action, mm-hmm. going out and punching Nazi dinosaurs type thing. And yeah. we get sort of the idea of what that story would be like in this book. Unfortunately, we have to sit through the few pages of Guy's mom being just a complete and utter I'm, bitch. I'm, I'm looking at this book. Yeah, I know. I'm looking at this book. Had this been published by Image right around maybe 2000, 2001, it probably would have been like a critical darling. <laughs> it just—I feel that this book's almost—it's—it's it, it's a great character to use, but it's almost like this book's out of place in the context of when it was being published, almost ahead of its time. It's not—it's not without its. You know, the few issues that I own, um, thanks to listening to your podcast, I've picked up a few here and there out of the out of the, you know, dollar bins. Um, the few issues that I have are are good. They're not without their flaws. Oh yeah. But but I see. You know, this sort of this like deconstruction of a superhero, making it into sort of you know playing up the comedy and what have you, um, that is definitely inspired in some ways by by the JLI stuff from the late '80s. But you know, 
put this at another company about five years later and it might have, have done very uh, much better. Well, I, I think uh, I think I, I fully agree with you, but I think a lot of this was, you know, a lot of Bo's desire of to follow that sort of line of uh, that line of that storyline was mm-hmm. kind of hindered a lot by and I hate to say this and I keep going back to it sort of ed- editorial finagling trying yeah. to make him sort of fit a sort of a sort of stereotype that they wanted him to fit in and mm-hmm. it just doesn't work for the way Bo wanted to write the character this the the way the story after we deal with guy's mom goes is really interesting I think really works but I think it's kind of the anomaly in the book because he was kind of hindered by editorial yeah and and continuity i think sometimes as much as i enjoy a sense of continuity continuity can also get in the way Mm -hmm. um of books like this yeah it is neat however that on page eight we finally get uh our big bad is gorilla grod i'm i'm always talking monkeys are always fun but however we do get a very 90s version of cyber apes cyber the word cyber was in everything in the in this in the mid 90s i'm just surprised that it's not you know spelled in a sort of more uh 90s way it's actually spelled correctly it's c-y-b-e-r it's not z-y-b-r-e or something (laughs) so that's good and we get of course the the apes breaking into the warriors building and stealing Mm -hmm. the MacGuffin thing so yeah but then uh, I guess this this all had to happen over a, a long period of time because Guy has gone back to his room and passed out. And Either that or he's trying to sleep that hangover off. <laughs> okay, it could be. <laughs> he got up, got some breakfast, and decided, you know what, this isn't – they're busted his shops. He's like, this isn't worth it. I'm going back to bed. I'm going to sleep off, off this hangover. That makes sense. I do love, however, on page, uh, page 10 that we get uh, – Buck has a uh, – a stealth helicopter with uh, large guns on it, and yes, of course I feel the need to place a reference to a certain stealth helicopter with large guns on it. You know what I'm thinking of? No. Yeah. Start the theme music, please. Airwolf. Yes. <laughs> da, 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 da. Okay. This is for you, Andy and Steven. Yes. There's Airwolf. I, I I can only imagine with the amount of supposed money that Buck Borco has, he bought Airwolf. <laughs> And, and the team's flying around in Airwolf to get things done. So, there you the go. Ol- the only thing that would have made this better is like a stand-in for Ernest Borgnine. Oh, that would have been <laughs> that would have so been awesome. Cool. Because a, a crusty old Ernest Borgnine character would have worked <sighs> well on this book. Yes, yes. See, and uh, uh, on the next page, I did not know this. I did not know that uh, Zinda was actually Lady Blackhawk's name. But it, it plays into the fact that uh, Bo Smith really knows his he, – he knows his continuity. He knows his characters. Uh, it's evidenced really well, like I said, in issue 29 where he just had everyone in the DC universe. And yeah. I'm glad that he was able to bring uh, Lady Blackhawk into this universe and tried to make her a support, uh, an interesting supporting character in this book. The rest of it's all just sort of – you know, a big old fight sequence. Yeah. Uh, I like 
I like the look of Grodd. I think uh, the Presti dra- draws some because a lot of times drawing, you know, ape uh, drawing apes is kind of a talent, and sometimes mm-hmm. artists draw them too humanoid. Here they look uh, enough like apes, but they've got enough human characteristics. I think it's probably in in the way their eyes look yeah, that uh, helps it out. But my favorite representation of Grodd was on the Justice League cartoons from oh. the early 2000s. So, oh yeah. Well, uh, I think but, everything that the Justice League cartoons yeah, did was was yeah. just phenomenal. I don't think you get a better representation of the DC universe than what you do in those shows. Yeah. I like the Sports Illustrated swimsuit shot of uh was it Verona Verona, Verona page yeah. 12 with the, you know, half the butt cheek hanging out of mm-hmm. the back of the um of the That is has- <laughs> that is stereo- That is a stereotype that you will find in the uh, Bo Smith run of uh, Guy Gardner. You will find women in the most egregious costumes ever. Uh, I am, I am still ranting and raving. Well, not raving, but ranting about the Aresia costume. <laughs> and if you have ever seen her costume for the Guy Gardner it, Warrior, it's awful. <laughs> the, yeah. This is cheesecakey mm-hmm. without it being like. Um, that sort of 90s every woman is suddenly wearing a thong type of <laughs> well and I like the fact that even though she's very attractive and she's got some back she's not the skinny wayfish person no she's we very would, muscular we would, we would far too often get the women in these 90s comics just being overly top heavy and having a waist that you could wrap your hand around so <laughs> You could fit my wedding ring around some of the women's <laughs> waists. Yes, it's not. It, the The one thing that I liked about the art style in the Guy Gardner books is at least the women looked like women. They looked like yeah. they had curves and they looked like they had like internal organs. Yes. So yes. it's it's nice to see that in here. And and this double page splash on fourteen and fifteen is really cool. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very nice splash page and they get all the characters in there you know firing their guns and it's a very 90s very 90s splash but uh, the artwork is just really dynamic with the every character getting something to do you know you've got gun shooting you've got people yeah. you know doing karate kicks guy throwing a couple of apes around it it's a really good two-page splash and it's it's nice to see it's very 90s, but it's it's well done in the book. Yeah, I noticed it, and you've pointed this out a number of times of how limited in the use of weapons that he like he uses his fists a lot more in the fight than he actually he conjures up a shield. I know he conjures up a gun at one point, but for the most part, Smith seems to um, limit the amount of gimmickry. In, mm-hmm. in his powers, at least in this fight. I, I really liked that about that. It's just, you know, not that I'm saying anytime you take on super intelligent gorillas, you only should use your fists, but it's just <laughs> kind of fun that this is basically a fist fight. Well, and I think that's what, uh, that's what I think Bo Smith has always wanted to do. He's always wanted to make him a, an amazing fighter. Mm-hmm. And it was only in the other books that you would see Guy Gardner growing guns yeah. and, these weird weapons out of his thing. He wanted to keep it very simple and very straightforward. And in fact, the whole idea of him morphing weapons was really not his idea, but 
since editorial mandated it, yeah. he had to go along with it and wanted to tre- keep it simple. And it's nice here that he is trying to keep it essentially simple, except for like on page 17, we see the first uh, use of a giant gun coming out of his arm. But mm-hmm. eh, and he, it but is he's what it is. it's an appropriately ticked off moment when he's been shot too. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. He's he's responding to Gorilla Grodd hitting with some hitting with the gun. So it's almost like, let's all right, you want to, you went there, let's go, you know? So, mm-hmm. so it, it, it almost makes sense in that. Uh, but it is nice that uh, on the next page on page 18 and after here's something that we finally, before I get to that, but we've got on page 18, we've got Verona and guy have this sort of mental link, which is something mm-hmm. that they started to build at. Mm-hmm. And they never really touched upon this prior to, well, they kind of touched on it in prior issues, but they were building on it. And this is one of the unfortunate things that I think that Smith wanted to build on, but wasn't able to because he didn't really have that many issues you know, left after this. Yeah. I think after this, there's only like five more issues coming up. Mm-hmm. So the, the mental telepathy thing is an interesting addition, but it, unfortunately it doesn't really get to be fully realized. Yeah. But I am glad that on page 18 – Guy takes out Gorilla Grodd with a punch to the nose. Oh so, yeah. So he doesn't he doesn't knock him down with a giant gun or you know anything. It's just a simple punch. So that's yeah. that yeah. is typical Smith stuff. And then on nineteen where he gives up, you could see how he's, he's in pain. He says, "We are finished." Do as the hairless one says, and he's got this look on his face like he's kind of still reeling from that punch. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it it does look like he's either reeling from it or he's got that sort of resolved uh, kind of downbeaten look that he knows yeah. that he's lost. Either way, it's a it's a nice panel and Lepresti uh, again does a good job at drawing actual apes rather than drawing like ape like looking humans. Yeah, the guy's got really good aim on page twenty one. <laughs> Oh yeah, him flinging the uh, yeah flinging the monkey at him. Yeah, uh, and and also you know he essentially blows up Gorilla Grodd's ship, so uh, essentially Gorilla Grodd is dead. So I don't know whether in continuity now if a guy has killed Gorilla Grodd, but I'm going to say that he has because I don't think Gorilla Grodd will ever come back. Oh wait! But you don't no. see the body, man. That's true. <laughs> Didn't death of the family teach you anything? <laughs> There's a helicopter explosion, and you don't see a body. That's true. It's it's all eighteen pack yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. In fact, but, Rod shows up in the early part of Peter David's Supergirl run. Oh dear lord! <laughs> About a year later. So. I guess he survived pretty well then. Oh yeah. Uh, but then we get the the whole wrap up and the mm. final panel of guy's ridiculous mom screaming uh aside from guy's mom this was a pretty this is a pretty good representation of a bo smith story it was some good action scenes a nice splash page of all the people fighting some fun quips guy making the comment of spanking the monkey (laughs) you you knew that had to come in. oh yeah that's the i don't think bo smith could have you know avoided that at all but I, I like this issue. What'd you think? I liked it. I, I like how the the he and his supporting his his gang supporting cast um 
there's granted they're written by the same person so he writes this but there's chemistry and like he shows how much chemistry they have with one another and i think if you, i think you're right if you take if you take the mother out of it it's it's actually much better mm-hmm. uh, but i don't think the mother the bits with his mom completely detract from the story it still makes it an entertaining issue no it's it, it's it does seem kind of thrown in because yeah. I, I overall the entire story works very well but the mother parts do seem kind of tacked on as trying to add some sort of weird form of humor in it but yeah overall i like this book it was uh it was good aside from the cover and the mom yeah yeah really good story yeah uh, if you're ready, we'll go ahead and take a look at the ads in this. Sure. Uh, inside front cover, I guess uh, pay-per-view was a big thing before, like you know, Netflix and on-demand stuff or on-demand stuff on cable. We I got think the, you could. I think you could still get movies on pay-per-view before they came out on video. Really? Yeah, it's that, because that, I, I want to say it was almost like getting them on demand. Yeah, or where they would they would show up, and I think it would be. I don't think the lag. I think the lag time was maybe a month or two. It really wasn't that, you know, much of a difference. It's not like where a movie would come out on video, but then HBO wouldn't get it to like, yeah, six months to a year. Yeah. So. But this one is for the Batman Forever with a mm-hmm. Val Kilmer in the Batman role and Chris O'Donnell and Robin. What? Since since you are the. Uh, Robin guy, what did you think about Chris O'Donnell's performance as, as Robin in the movies? Um, I'm going to start off by saying it's been almost 20 years since I've seen any either movie. Okay. I, I saw Batman and Robin once in the theater. That was more than enough. My friend and I turned it to our, turned it into our own personal episode of MST3K. It's probably we the one best like, way to watch it. Like three people in the theater besides us, and nobody seemed to mind the fact that we were hurling insults at it. Batman Forever, I saw, I've seen twice. I saw it in the theater, and then I saw it on, um, on video, and I haven't seen it since about '96. I didn't mind Chris O'Donnell. I thought he was a little stiff, and it might have been the script. You know, I don't think anything could have really saved Batman and Robin. Batman Forever, um. I'd actually have to go back and watch it. And I was, I was on the, I was on like the Wikipedia page or something recently for the movie. Why? I don't remember, but I read somewhere that there, that there originally was like a much longer cut of the movie that the studio had them cut down so that they could get like a true PG 13 rating or a PG rating. So 13, 13 rating. And, and, and they played up a lot of the, sillier aspects of things um especially where two-face was concerned so i was i'm kind of curious to see something like that but Mm. i might have to go back and 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 watch this i i plan on watching all four of them because i have three commentaries that mike bailey did for his batman podcast and then over on from batgirl to oracle stella and donovan grant did a Batman and Robin commentary. So I plan on sitting down. Um, I have the first two. I have Batman and Batman Returns on video, and, and I plan on just renting the other two and, and sitting and watching that. So I don't remember O'Donnell being horrible, but I don't remember him being particularly memorable and great. It was almost like he was too uptight. Yeah. You know, or 2G whiz or something. It was almost, you know... 
he needed to be a little bit more of a it was almost like he was actually a little too old for it they should have gotten an actual teenager in the role i could agree with you there he did seem he did seem almost even though Val Kilmer is a lot older in this movie, he yeah. did almost seem as a contemporary rather than mm-hmm. a, a youthful student. Yeah. And but I think this was the last this was the first film that Schumacher worked on and sort of the parting of ways with Tim Burton and yeah. however you feel about the uh, Tim Burton Batman films. They were iconic and they did sort of mm-hmm. help define the character for the 80s and 90s. And this, I don't think it holds up as well, especially because of the role of uh, Jim Carrey as the Riddler in it. I think that's the one thing yeah. that detracts from the film. I, I, I get this. Th- it was around this time that the casting seemed to be more important than anything. Mm-hmm. And they would hype up who was playing whom yeah. to the point where you knew that this movie wasn't going to be great. Yeah, when 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 your major draw is who's in the film rather than yeah. it's being written by, I think that says something and that definitely said something for for Batman and Robin where the big draws were Clooney and Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And uh who else was in that? Uma Thurman? Uma Thurman. Is that Uma yeah. Thurman? Yeah. Yeah, it was Uma Thurman. Yeah, so again, it you and know, Alicia and, Silverstone, which, you know, yeah. granted, I, I wouldn't mind watching Alicia Silverstone. And I just read Clueless. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's a much, more, that's a that's much, a much more better movie. <laughs> true. You know, The Toxic Avenger is a much more better movie than Batman and Robin. But. Yeah, this movie, and, and not only that, that gave us the FM uh, adult contempt staple kiss from a rose, which has not gone away. <laughs> no, still have to heal, hear that freaking seal song. Yes, that is, <laughs> it did. I do remember that they uh, played some song from the offspring in there during the whole, uh, uh, Dick Grayson stealing the Batmobile scene, but yeah, I'd have to look it up. My wife actually has the soundtrack. It's in the other room, and uh, I, you know, um, that's okay. That's uh, hey, I I've got some questionable CD choices myself. So uh, if, I I won't. I have go into I have the last Action Hero soundtrack. So that's <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've got me beat there, sir. I don't think I can. I don't think I can top that. Um, yeah, this well, movie is uh, it's it's not terrible but the next one is, is pretty bad and yes i don't think it's aged very well yeah it, it is once again you know like like this show has said many times before it is it is stereotypically 90s it is mm-hmm. a product of the 90s and you can tell with the you know val kilmer and this, especially especially jim carrey jim carrey yeah. s- squarely sets it in the 90s I had this running joke with a friend, a friend um, a number of years ago, referring to the Nirvana Britney Spears generational divide, that 
you know, you can you can see not that like Kurt Cobain's suicide was such a watershed moment, but you can really see a stark difference between the first half of the 1990s and the second half of the 1990s. Oh yes, and the four Batman films kind of show it too, where there's this dark kind of you know I hate to use the word gritty, but you know that sort of very dark moody piece in the in the first two, and then this ramped up color palette and yeah, cartoonishness the, of the second two. The very day glow neon yes. type look, especially yes. you saw that horribly in that, <clears throat> that fight sequence in yeah. this movie between uh, Dick Grayson and all those sort of yeah. very weirdly painted neon characters in that. But yeah, the only thing that would have made this more nineties is this, is if like Mickey G had directed it. Oh God. <laughs> Or hype, or hype Williams. J.J. Abrams owes so much to Hype Williams with the lens flare. <laughs> oh uh, wow! I don't even think about that. Let's get to the let's get to the good Batman ad. <laughs> That's true. Uh, the next ad we've got is the Simon Kirby Legends one. We covered yeah, that we last that. time. But then you know the next page is for uh, the Batman story Contagion. Yeah. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to you because I I've heard about this story but I don't think I've read it. What is the Contagion storyline about? It's essentially this is what this is late '95, early '96. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the movie Outbreak in a Batman comic. Ooh. In that there's a virus that's basically killing people very very quickly and it's the race to find the cure from what i remember it's been a very long time since i sat down and read the whole thing and there is a trade paperback but unfortunately it's like one of those out of print 90s trades that you can't get for cheap oh yeah on ebay um but from what i remember it's it's very much a suspense kind of like we've got to find a cure for this quickly and they they obviously eventually do i think there's a tie-in with or a tenuous connection to Rachel Rule because of the legacy storyline, but I don't quote me on that. I'm not not entirely sure. Okay. I remember the direct Batman and Robin issues being very very good. The Catwoman tie-ins felt like they were there because they had to tie in, and and the Azrael. I don't remember much about the Azrael issues. It kind of um, seems like it kind of sounds like it might be following the sort of. Uh, idea that they set forth on the night quest and nightfall mm-hmm. type things where they they felt a need to include the sort of alternate bat titles like Cat yes catwoman and all that so and they were doing that for uh they would end up doing this for a few years up to the point where no man's land was like a culmination of all of that um and i actually got pretty burned out as a result of No Man's Land. Yeah, well, I, I, maybe that's kind of the the beginning of what you know DC would do in the you know in the 2000s, where it would be the company wide crossover, where yeah. everything would be interconnected to this one story that was, you know, I I pointed to Blackest Night, a mm-hmm. story that should have been relegated to the Green Lantern books, but encompassed the entire DC universe, and if you wanted to know what was going on through the story sometimes you had to put pick up ancillary books that had really no relation to it so yeah i can yeah. i can see how that would be annoying wasn't that the original intention 
with Blackest Night, though, and then when the Sinestro Corps War and Infinite Crisis and some of these things started doing so well, the the higher-ups kind of stepped in and said, let's make this the big crossover event. That's that's what I kind of got. Uh, Jeff yeah. Johns originally wanted to keep it like Sinestro Corps War and just keep yeah. it in the Green Lantern titles, but they decided to expand it out to every... You know, every book, you know, you got Superman and Flash and Wonder Woman and yeah, because they tried to do that with Final Crisis. And it I think it the, I think the attempt to make Final Crisis of crossover of some sort fell a little flat, though, mainly because the book kept shipping shipping late, too. Yeah, well, but you know, we could complain for days oh. on end about the the weirdness of Morrison and final uh, crisis, but <clears throat> we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for another show. Yeah. Uh, the next ad we've got here is a house ad for a uh, Superboy apocalypse in the tropics, which I yeah. guess is a storyline. This is part one of losing it. Yeah. Running through the, uh, Superboy books and you've got the, uh, not quite Connor Kent nineties haircut, Superboy, And it's, uh, done by, uh, Kessel, I guess Tom Grummond is drawing him, so it yeah. looks good here. I, and, I, uh, this actually makes me want to <laughs> read the book. I'm like, because this looks like kind of a fun. Well, you've got again, him. You've got him fighting all these characters. I, I'm seeing Barda on here, and a lot mm-hmm. of the Furies from Apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, you've got Knockout here, and I don't know who the the guy in the on the right hand side in the yellow or the yellow and the red with the I'm sort of shield sure. thing on him. I don't know who that is, but it looks like a fun yeah. kind of issue. And the fact that they're bringing in the fourth world characters from apocalypse, that looks like, mm. like it'd be a neat read. Yeah. Uh, next page, we get the kingdom come ad again. We talked about that in the last issue. It's, it's nice. Alex, Alex Roth artwork or Alex yeah. Ross. I think mm-hmm. Alex Toth. <laughs> Which are two vastly different artists, decades apart too. Then after that, we get a we don't get an ad until we get to the uh, yeah, Batman and Robin adventures. And I guess yeah. I'm thinking this might have been since it says by Ty Templeton and Rich Burchett, uh, who were actual people who worked on the uh, Batman the animated series book or the Batman's uh, the animated series show. And they ported them over to the Batman and Robin adventures. But um, yeah. this is nice artwork. Unfortunately, it's not. I think this might have been kind of. Well, no, it's not after Parabek had you know, sadly passed away. But I think Parabek was off the book. and yeah. But the, the artwork is really nice. It's got that sort of. It's got the very Batman, the animated series style. And you've got Batman and Robin swinging in. And yeah. I don't know if they. Was this the design that they incorporated for the Batman the animated series? Because I remember this looks more like a Dick Grayson Batman than the Tim Drake Batman, the younger one that they would use in in the uh, I guess in the second sort of series of. Uh, I'm certain you meant to say Robin instead of Batman, but maybe this is why you should podcast before you've had your prerequisite four cups of coffee. I, I think pictures. at first. It was a Dick Grayson, and then eventually they went on to use a Tim Drake. But I think in those first, I, it it's been a long time since I watched it, and mm-hmm. like Mike or Andy or somebody could could correct me on this, but I think at first it was Dick Grayson. 
yeah, they I... were using the the Tim Drake costume mm-hmm. with the Dick Gray, with a couple of Dick Grayson elements, and then eventually they were using um, they would because they would have him as Nightwing. Yeah, I remember eventually in the, in the later. Yeah. Yeah, so, of it, you know, but but I think they started with with him as Robin, and he was a college. I remember the, one of the first episodes of Batman the Animated Series when they did for, finally show Robin. He was at college already. Mm-hmm. I, rem- so, I remember a football themed episode that, yeah. that dealt with uh, the Scarecrow putting some sort of fear toxin in, in yeah. like the football game. But uh, yeah, this is a it's a nice work uh, here. Yeah. You've got the secondary characters of detective Bullock and the commissioner and Renee Montoya there too, yeah. a character that I think originated in the uh, animated series and then leapt over to the comic books like, uh, like Harley Quinn, like Harley Quinn as well. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I liked, um, I, I liked these cause I have a few issues here and there of some of the tie in, uh, comics, uh, especially the ones I, uh, my, my son, and I would sit down and read the Batman, the Brave and the Bold mm-hmm. uh, comics when they were out. And my only my only problem with the with the kids lines of comics is that they're so and Marvel does this, too. They're so determined to tie them into like a cartoon that when they stop making the cartoon, they stop making the book. So, mm. you know, like with they had a really fun Marvel had a really fun Spider-Man kids Marvel Adventures Spider-Man, and then they started coming out with this Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. So they, you know, killed that and started the next book. And the next book's good, but it's not as as fun. And and then when the Batman: The Brave and the Bold cartoon ended, so did the series. And they've replaced it with they have Little Gotham, which is a little above his his level. I've been picking it up, but but mm. you know, and and they canceled Superman: Family Adventures, which kind of bummed. Really? Me. That's yeah, that was such a great book. I you know I I haven't read any of the Superman Adventures, but I used yeah. to. Uh, my kids would go to the comic book store with me, mm-hmm. and they would pick up the Tiny Titans book that was done by a. Uh, uh, Franco and Balthazar. Yeah, and it's the same. It's the same yeah. team. And in fact, in the last couple of issues, they they reference. I have a few Tiny Titans books, and I might go pick up a couple of trades. But they reference some of the Tiny Titans stuff. And what I liked about the Superman thing is that there's, it's, it's like it's the perfect kind of comic for kids and adults to read because there's some there are references to things that you get an adult if you've seen like the, the Reeve movies or, or mm-hmm. read some of the comics and you know, it's, it's cute. It's in the same way that your average Warner brothers cartoon is funny for both kids and adults because there's stuff that you get and stuff that your six year old's going to get. So. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's them playing it up. It's them playing with continuity and them yeah. putting in certain characters yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, references to like silver age type stuff. Cause I know yeah. they brought in, Characters like the Super Horse, and I thought I thought they mm-hmm. brought in Beppo to the Superman. They have the whole they have the whole Super Pets. Oh, that's awesome! And and there's a bit in one of the issues where they they give an explanation as to why he's not wearing the underwear on this costume anymore. It's because Crypto kept eating it, or something <laughs> to that extent. It's it was just a great it was a great little thing because it was right around the time of the New Fifty Two when he's got the new costume and yes, you know there, there are some very uh, very funny. Um, funny bits in there and uh dark side is a lunch lady um, <laughs> and, and and some of these some of the other things well uh, one of the things i remember from the tiny titans book is uh the the titans used to go to the school and i want to say 
uh, Lobo was the gym instructor there. <laughs> so uh, dodgeball at the uh, at the uh, Tiny Titan School was pretty ridiculous. But yeah, yeah. The, I, I gave a lot of credit to Alt Balthasar for doing yeah. those books. He has a, a great love of continuity, but he also has a lot of fun with the books yeah. too. So those were fun stuff. In fact, uh, some of those some of those books can be more entertaining than some of the quote unquote adult comics <laughs> at times because. The adult sometimes the the DC and Marvel stuff is so up its own, yeah. You know what that that you well you, and, get, you tire of it. You want something that's that's just kind of fun to watch. And that's that's the thing that I've always enjoyed a lot more over than continuity and you know realism and grittiness is that every once in a while you just have a book that has fun with itself. And yeah. the, the Tiny Titans and the Superman Family Adventures sounded like books that would work in continuity, but didn't have the ultra seriousness that I have to, you know, reference everything and it has to be yeah. this type of form. So yeah. fun books is what we yeah. need more comics. Yeah. And this is coming from someone whose favorite story of all time is Christ's on infinite earth. So, uh, you know, to which be is, honest, which is so much of continuity, <laughs> you know, to be honest, even with all the continuity references that they put in that book, that book is far more fun read than a lot of the stuff that we'll get it's, in, like modern comics, you know, uh, so, but no. uh, the next page we've got uh, an ad for Aquaman and I'm not certain. Uh, yeah. I guess this is the Peter David ongoing one. Yeah. And for a, some reason the flash is here too. It's a trade for the oh, okay. series he did, I think before the ongoing. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice image of Aquaman prior to his very nineties shirtless, uh, harpoon hand look. Yeah, uh, he's got the he's got the gloves on, but the gloves have the sort of fin things coming off them as, mm-hmm. as well. And he's got the longer bobby hair. hair. Yeah, but uh, it's it's a nice looking image. And uh, I've heard that the Peter David Aquaman stuff is awesome. I'll, I have too. I've never read it. I'll, I'll I'll default to Rob Kelly on that from mm-hmm. the Aquaman Shrine. I'm certain he he loves the stuff. Moving on after that, this is kind of odd. We get a DC subscription ad, but if you uh, subscribe to two or more titles, you get a free five-minute phone card, yeah. which has uh, Superboy, The Flash, and the the new uh, Kyle Rayner Green Lantern on it. So yeah. I don't know why they'd be promoting a phone card with subscriptions, but there you go, I guess. So, uh. Yeah. They're still offering Guy Gardner Warrior. Yeah, Guy Gardner Warrior is still there. I'm trying to see. They're still offering Extreme Justice, which I'm pretty sure was about to get canceled yeah, too. Yeah, Extreme if Justice I was. Correctly. Um, other than that, I don't know. Maybe Fate. I think Fate ran a little longer, but this is the Deathstroke was on its last leg. Yeah. At this point too. So there's a few of them that you know might have not run out the entire twelve the, the entire twelve issue thing, but yeah. Yeah. You take what you can. Then the next page we've got uh, is a comic that I'm really, I really have no ties to, and I'm, you know, I should because it's written by Chris Chris Claremont, Chris Claremont, yeah, and drawn by Dwayne Turner. It's Sovereign Seven, and I have no idea what this comic is about, but it, you know, the artwork looks really good in it. It looks, of course, very '90s, and yeah. Chris Claremont's a great writer, so. They um, 
it's two things I noticed. I remember they promoted this heavily because it was Chris Claremont coming to DC mm-hmm. after, because he got his departure from Marvel wasn't the best. No, from what I've read, and so they that they eventually were able to pick him up and let him write something. This was supposed to be a big coup, but I don't remember that this did very well. No, I know I it hung on for a while, but I don't think it did very well. No, I think I think it was you know promoted pretty highly because yeah, DC's yeah. got Chris Claremont and he's doing his own storyline. But yeah, I I know literally next to nothing about it. Yeah, I, I do like on here the seven reasons to read Sovereign Seven. Number one, Dark Side sipping cappuccino, <laughs> and that's just in the first three issues. So cool so do we get three issues of Dark Side? Sippy cappuccino that's that's almost ambush bug ridiculousness <laughs> that that would be I, I could see you doing some humor using dark side in that in that way and, and having it be uh be fun my my all-time favorite dark side panel at this point is the one in the jla avengers where he's got the infinity gauntlet and oh. the and the marvel heroes are just basically crapping their pants yet the infinity gauntlet doesn't work in the dc universe he's like and he's like well this seems to be important to you so here you go <laughs> it's it's my it's one of my favorite scenes in that crossover beating that out slightly is where batman goes and beats up the punisher because he sees, and it's all, it's completely off panel, and all you know is that Plastic Man is just screaming at him for beating up the Punisher. <laughs> I love JLA Avengers. It's really, really fun. Oh, is, the, is the Jerome K. Moore the same one who would do, like, Star Trek covers and... <sighs> I don't know his name. You know, you know who. Familiar. It, yeah. It, if you looked at a lot of the Star Trek covers, especially um, from the DC series, it's this very. Um, he did a very, very good likeness of the crew, and it was this art style that had this. It had a lot of lines to it, but. Um, and he did some interior work for a Titans issue where Nightwing and Deathstroke had it out. Uh, it was '86 or so, and it. He has gorgeous, gorgeous art. But it, he looks like the type of artist who, kind of like an Art Adams, who you'd only see every once in a while because his art was so involved that yeah. he probably couldn't work on Deadline very well. Um, I was wondering if that's the same guy. I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. I, I bet yeah. you know we'd probably have to defer to like Scott Gardner, who has a mm-hmm. bit more experience with the Star Trek books. But his name yeah. sounds familiar, so it might be. Uh, See, moving on. We don't have any real ads until. Uh, buy it on. Buy it <laughs> Screw you, Polly Shore. Uh. And the, then the back outside cover is, you know, an ad for Clearasil, which, you know, I railed against initially because I thought, isn't that just stereotypical of putting ads for, you know, zit cream or zit pads <laughs> in a comic book? But then I got a letter from. Uh, Steve Rogers saying that no, this stuff would show up in in uh, issues of like uh, Sports Illustrated for kids yeah. magazine. So they're not only promoting; they're they're just promoting their ad, and uh, yeah. it is what it is. The, but I used Stridex or Clearasil for a couple of years in like junior high, 
and it would dry out your face. Oh yeah, I remember and, using it too. But if you, um, I'm actually looking at the back of a Batman comic right now that has a Stridex set. Um, the other thing that I remember is because we had my junior high had a pool, and we would do a swimming unit in gym. And if you've ever <laughs> having Stridex on your face and then going in a pool burns. Oh dear lord! It burns. <laughs> It'd be like ah. So you know, it's not as painful as stepping on a Lego. <laughs> <laughs> You've kids. That is the ultimate pain. <laughs> I know. I do. It sucks. But yeah, it was Stratix. It was like oh my god, it burns. And and I was the only one who who would have that. You would just be like like ah, this hurts. Oh lord. But this was uh, these were two pretty fun issues. The yeah. the mom the mom part of the guy gardener issue aside, mm-hmm. I I really enjoyed this. And Tom, I really appreciate you coming on the show and doing this here. Uh, the, this was really fun to get you out and uh, get you away from the Batman and Robin stuff. Yes. Unfortunately, you know Batman and Robin didn't show up that much in the book. But That's I was cool. glad to have you on regardless. Well, Why don't we go thank ahead you for having me? I, oh, I really, really had fun. I'm glad to. Why don't we go ahead and I'll let you uh, give people an idea where they can find you on the interwebs. Sure. Um, you can find me at Taking Flight uh, over at the Batman Universe now. If you go to the Batman Universe and you look at Taking Flight, uh, that is my usually bi-weekly podcast about Robin and Nightwing, and right now I'm uh, in the middle of Prodigal. Uh, I also have a blog and a podcast associated with that blog, Pop Culture Affidavit, popcultureaffidavit.com. Uh, the podcast goes about once a month, and it's every time I do it and every time I do an entry, it's something completely random that has to do with popular culture. Uh, my last episode back in May, I'm blanking on – oh, it was Saved by the Bell. And uh, <laughs> this, the upcoming issue, the, the, the episode that will be out by the time this comes out is actually going to be about the Columbia House tape and CD company um, and, and what have you. And, and particular albums that I remember getting from Columbia House and, uh, and later in the and, – and I do movies, I do TV and I do music and things like that. And coming soon, I've got a few episodes in the can. I'm going to try to get a few more uh, I am going to be starting a podcast called In Country, which is going to be about Marvel Comics series uh, The Nom. And uh, I'm looking to drop that starting in late July of 2013. It sounds interesting. Yeah, it's it's been – I've done about – I'm about four issues, four episodes in as far as what I've gotten the notes together and actually recorded. And I've been, I've been enjoying it. It's been, it's been fun to put together. So that's where you can find me. Um, and otherwise, uh, taking flight and pop culture affidavit will have Facebook pages and, and, uh, and, and I will, and I frequently write letters to, uh, to various podcasts, especially yours and Andy Leyland's, uh, cause it's, you guys tend to read them on the air more frequently and it, it's, it's fun to do that. And it's, well, it's nice because I used to, I used to write letters to col- comics all the time. So. <laughs> it's always nice to hear your letters. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. And uh, I've been neglectful cause I'd never read letters whenever I had people on the show. So I need yeah. to get back to that. I've got a backlog of them. Uh, I just wanted to mention, uh, I want to try and tell you this. If you guys want to pick these books up, um, you can find the Green Lantern one reprinted 
Uh, it's in Green Lantern Baptism of Fire trade paperback, but I think that's one of those 90s trade paperbacks that may be out of print and you probably would be much better served by going to your LCS and searching back issue bins because I think you can pick these up for relatively cheap. But uh, Tom, again, thanks for coming on the show. It was great talking with you, even uh, though we didn't talk all that much about Robin and everything. But just despite the Skype issues, yeah. <laughs> no, the, you've got to expect, expect Skype issues if you're. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, no, I, I really enjoyed this. This was uh, this was fun. We'll have to do it again. Uh, definitely. But uh, that's it for this time, everyone. We will catch you next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Two True Freaks Demonza Core sponsored podcast. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMonsacore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. I think I think we can pop this one out in like thirty minutes or so. Yeah, this isn't a very involved issue. No, it's not. And unfortunately, I'll go ahead and you know kill the lead. I like the issue. I thought it had some good parts, but the whole thing with Guy's mom that was really out of character and really crappy comedy. Oh, okay. So if you if you feel that way, please, because I know I know the Guy Gardner warrior stuff you know, is hit and miss with people. I know, uh, like I said, I usually have Thomas DJ on to talk about this because he loves the stuff as much as I do. But I'm pretty certain that even he would be like, oh, this is... Because the, the comedy stuff before the mom comes mm-hmm. in... Oh, yeah. he's essentially waking up with a hangover and his friends are all in there and they're totally giving him <laughs> I had forgotten that he actually did uh, the Justice League International stuff for the New 52. Oh, really? Yeah, and I, I was kind of, uh, you know, I, I may have to go look because that was one of the few things I was picking up along with, uh, I picked up All-Star Western, and I was just picking that up to see, you know, what it would be like, whether it would be anything like the JLI stuff that I, you know, grew to enjoy in the 80s yeah. and all that, and eh, it was average. I think Scott Gardner kind of got me into Jonah Hex, and I've enjoyed the character, but yeah. I haven't really been picking up all that many titles. I may go 
and pick up uh, if I can find it at my LCS the the final issue of Jeff Johns' Green Lantern because I hear that they finally bring Nort back into the DC. Oh, really? So, yeah. so at least Nort survived the uh, the new Fifty Two. 